Welcome from Tiffin Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, everybody. How long has it been since we have hung out together? Seems to be a while, doesn't it? If you want to get your copy of the scriptures and uh, go to James chapter 4. This, um, this marks our, I don't know, eighth time maybe, seventh time, I don't know, I, I lost count, that we've been in the book of James. And uh, I have missed uh, the privilege of standing in front of you and preaching. And um, I don't, I don't take that for granted. It's, it's important to me to come together and worship with people. And I, I hope on days that the weather is not friendly to us, that you miss those opportunities as well, and long for the time that we can come back together. I'm not going to really talk a whole lot about the trip that I just went on. I think that's probably uh, more appropriate for another time. I think this morning we would do... Uh, some good diligence towards getting into the book of James. I, I do have some, some great things to tell you about uh, the orphanage that we went down and worked at, but this morning, I, you know, and I'm sure there's going to be things pop in my head that happened on the trip, and I'll, I, there's not much I can do about that, but I think this morning, uh, what's on my heart is to, is to um, share with you some of my thoughts on James chapter 4, 1 through 12. You know, for those of you that, are, that have been using your study booklets, um, these uh, things right here, at the end of every chapter, I, I throw out the question, uh, what evidences do you find that point to you being a Christian? And if you've been doing them, I just want to throw some things out that we've talked about, some things that, as Christians, you should show. Um, in chapter 1, how do you handle trials? How do you handle the tough days? Also in chapter 1, uh, what type of a prayer person are you? Are you a consistent prayer person? How do you handle temptation? That's also in chapter 1. Uh, how do you respond to God's word? That's the hearing and doing. That's also in chapter 1. Chapter 2 talked about favorites. Uh, do you treat everybody equally in the eyes of God? Do you have favorites? Uh, Christians really shouldn't have any. Um, also in chapter 2 is the faith and works. Your faith is shown evidence by the life that you live. And then in chapter 3 we got into how do you act about your mouth. What does your mouth show? What comes out of your mouth as evidence that you're a Christian? And then the end of chapter 3 would be wisdom. Where do you go for actual wisdom? And now we jump into chapter 4, that was 1 through 3, and we hit chapter 4, and chapter 4 really is a continuation thought from chapter 3. When we started, who do you get wisdom from, it really doesn't change, I don't think, through all of chapter 4. And it is um, something that continues. Uh, one of the things that we, we left off with, and I know it's been a while, but one of the things we left off with was... Um, when you don't have a good source of wisdom, uh, three things happen. You will deny the truth. 
And uh, when you deny the truth, there's chaos in your life. There's disorder. And when you deny the truth and there's chaos, then that leads to all kinds of evil. And so I don't think it's an accident that James leads off chapter 4, continuing the thought saying, well, a kind of evil that shows up is a pretty obvious one, and that is we fight. And that's going to pretty much be what chapter 4, 1 through 12 hit, is an offshoot that we are leaning on our own understanding and not on Christ's is we get into fights. Some fights are good. Some fights are worth having. But most fights can be resolved peacefully. So I've got some questions that I kind of threw out there for those of you that follow along in your study booklet. When was the last fight or argument you had? On the way to church today? <laughs> I, luckily, we didn't have one. No? <laughs> usually, usually one pops up. But um, when was the last fight, argument you had? Who, who was it with? Who started it? What was it about? And uh, this is always one. Who got the last word? I, I say that because here, here's what's at stake. Is often very little subjects turn into huge festering wounds if we don't handle them correctly. And James is not going to pull any punches on this section about our fighting and our quarreling. If I was to ask you the most bitter family feud in history, what would you obviously say? Made a movie about it. Family feud between the, yeah, the Hatfields and McCoys, right? So I, I wanted to do a little research on the, Hat, the Hatfields and McCoys, but here's what happened. When, when I got on the internet and started searching, the top four bloodiest family feuds, the Hatfields and McCoys was up there, but there were four that were actually recorded as being just as bad, if not worse. And did you know one of them was in Benton County? Yeah, just right over there around Warsaw? Not too far away. Um, it was called the Slicking War. Yeah, I know you're, yeah, I did the same thing. I was like, what are you talking about? In Benton County in 1840, two guys got in a fight. They'd been drinking, and the elections were over, and obviously they had voted for two different guys. And so they were arguing about which one was the better candidate. This was before the election results were over. So they were arguing, and, and one of them got whooped, and the other one went and told the family. And from then on, it was known as the Slicking War. And here's where Slicking came in, is if you were a member of that family, either by friend or by blood, and if they caught you, they could, they could whip you, like tear a stick off the tree, and give you a good slicking, is what they called it. And that went on for about three or four years, that, that family feud over an election, over two guys arguing, and they were drunk, over an election result. And I thought, 
It's probably not much different in my life that I fight with the people that I care about or even people that I don't even know. And I don't want to let loose of that because, of course, I'm always right. Right? We're never wrong. And so James is going to get right to the point on this. And I hope you got your ears open today because mine certainly were when I studied this section. Where we get our wisdom from matters. And in this section, who we call our friends are people we don't really want to fight with. The bottom line is, as we study this section, a friend's going to be somebody that you listen to and take advice from, not somebody that you want to square off with, put some boxing gloves on, or bare knuckle fight it out. So what we're going to do before we get started today is we are going to read the entire section of James 1 through 12, but before we do, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer and ask God to be gracious to us as I usually do. God, this morning, as we read your word, God, as uh, we discuss it, as we uh, talk amongst ourselves and think about these words that you wrote for us a long time ago, Lord, I ask that you uh, reveal more of who you are in this passage to us, more of your grace, your mercy, your love, your compassion, your justice, more of who you are. God, we'll spend eternity trying to figure this out, and we'll never come to the end of it. So this morning, God, I ask that you reveal a little bit more about who you are to us. God, also uh, expose parts of ourselves as well through this passage this morning. Things that need to be um, given some attention to that have been ignored for a long time. God, help us not to... Um, um, shut our ears and shut our eyes to the truth that hits us today, but to be willing to change things about ourselves that need to change. God, we thank you for the time that we can come together and do just this. Study your word. Allow the preaching to be heard. And worship together. Now, there's places in the world that people can't even do this. And God, shame, us, shame on us for times that we take it lightly. We love you so much, and we trust you with everything in our lives. We pray this in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's read James 4, 1 through 12. I am again reading in the Christian Standard Bible. For those of you that are interested, what version I read. Verse 1, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire... And do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Verse 4 You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Verse 11, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. 
Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, right off the bat, James identifies the problem with fighting. The problem with fighting and quarrels among you is you are the problem. Now, that's not what I hear in my, in my life. I don't know what you hear, but that's not what I hear in my life. What I hear in my life is I didn't do it. It's not my fault. Um, I'm innocent. I was just standing there when everything happened around me and I had nothing to do with it. I mean, every kid that shows up into the principal's office isn't guilty. And everybody that is sitting in jail right now is innocent and got railroaded. But James says, no, you're the problem. And if we can stop and just start right there, when we get into a fight, and look at ourselves and say, what did I do to get myself in this mess? And put the blame on yourself, fights would end up a lot different. They really would. What's the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions? Now that word passions is where we get the word hedonism. Now if you've never heard that word hedonism, I'll define it for you. And this is my definition. You're not going to find this in a Webster, but this is how I define it. Hedonism is, if it feels good, you can do it. And that's what James says is the problem with fights, is you live your life with a hedonistic idea that's driven by your passions, and he also says your desires. You see, the battle you need to recognize this morning is that there is an internal battle going on. Actions that you want personal gain, some boss status, some selfish want, and really, they have no regard for how you satisfy them. Whatever good is for me is what matters most. And James says right here, now I don't know if he's literally talking about murder, but I know if you covet and greed in your heart, that's as serious as murder. So here's the problem. If you have a battle of desire in your heart, that goes unchecked, the devastation is terrible. James tells us what the devastation is. It cuts you off from the one thing that you can do, which is ask for help. You see, when your internal desires are winning, your ability to talk to God loses. You know, there's a passage in the scripture that talks about the way I treat my wife, and if I treat my wife with disrespect and I fight with her, that passage says God won't hear my prayers. James is just backing that up. He says it right there in verse, uh, back half of verse 2. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. The first thing that happens is when people start thinking more about what they want, they don't pray. They don't pray. We're going to have a section on prayer coming up here, but I can't help but just ask, do you pray? And if you don't pray, 
Why don't you pray? Is it because your life revolves around you and that's why you don't pray? Because James says that's one of the reasons that it actually happens that way. So you either don't pray or you have a different kind of prayer. He says it here, verse 3. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Now this one's a little tougher because this is you praying for something, but deep down inside, it's really about you. It's really about what you want, not what God wants. Okay. We pray for people to get healing, don't we? It's biblical, isn't it? We pray for people to get healed. We want people to get over sickness. That's what we want. But can I ask you what your motivation is for that? Is it just so you feel better? Is that it? Is that as far as it goes? Because if it is, that's pretty much a prayer that is this way. We need to start praying with our brain and intelligently. And in light of James chapter 4, we need to start praying that not only do people get better, but there's a reason why people get better. It's so they can have an opportunity to continue worshiping the Lord in a way that they will not be able to worship the Lord any other time. And secondly, to do something that they'll never be able to do anywhere else except on earth, which is be a witness. That's why people get strength. You know, I, I, don't, I, I can't trace the hand of God, but I can tell you this. That the reason why it doesn't happen to you... You know some... Okay, I'm, 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 I'm chasing something here, and you know it happens, but here's, here's what a kid will come to me and say. Why did this happen to these people, and why did this happen to this group, and why did it happen to this city? And, and why am I... You know, why do I seem to uh, dodge the bullet, so to speak, or, or miss the disaster, or miss that, that tornado didn't wipe me out or anything else? And, and so I look at these kids at, who ask me this question, why did so-and-so die? Why did this person have to die? Why did this? And this is what I ask them. As I look at them and I say, why don't we quit worrying about why are they dead? And why don't we ask the question, why are you still alive? Why are you still breathing? You see, your death and everything is an appointment. And the reason why you still have strength and the reason why you still have breath is because God has a plan. And he wants everybody to know who his son Jesus Christ is. And you are a part of that plan. You're his big plan to send out to the world. And at God's appointed time, your chance of blessing somebody in the way that you could never bless them again will be over. And I don't know when that is for me, and I don't know when that is for Brian, I don't know when that is for Carolyn or Delbert or my wife or Tessa, I don't know. I don't know when it'll be your last moment to tell somebody of the joys of Jesus Christ, but God does. And so when we pray for healing, it's not just that we pray that somebody gets better, it's so that we pray that they have the wisdom to know why they got better. Or finances. It's the never-ending struggle, right? 
I think until the day that we lay our head finally in our casket, we will have bills. I have been proven that by my parents. They will continue to pay health insurance and health bills, and different kind of bills. I mean, it seemed like when they were healthy, they were paying for me. And now that they're not paying for anybody but themselves, well, you know what? They are paying for themselves. And finances never go away. So why do we pray for comfortable finances? Is it so we can get a bigger boat or a nicer car or an addition to our house? It's not. It's not. It's so we have the resources to build God's kingdom. That's why. I heard somebody in this church talk about tithing. And if your finances are so tight that you can't tithe, you have the wrong perspective on your wallet. I asked a guy at work one time about his finances. And he sells fireworks. I sell fireworks. And um, he does really well at it. Way better than I do. Like, he does really well. And I sat with him in his office one time, and I said, hey, let me ask you this. When is enough enough? Like, when will you say, I've sold enough this year. I don't need to break that next year. And he just stopped and looked at me and thought it was the dumbest question anybody ever asked him. Like, it's, that's business. You want to make more. And I thought... Then I asked him a second question when he kind of froze on me, and I said this. I go, what do you do with the money you make? And he had, a, he had it all lined out. I'm going to pay this off, I'm going to pay this off, I'm going to pay this off, I'm going to pay this off. Now, I want you to know this guy is a person who says they love Jesus Christ and a Christian. And so I said, what, what portion of that comes back to the Lord? And he stopped and he goes, I've never given any of it. And then he looked at me and he goes, well, what do you do? And I go, before fireworks season ever starts, I sit down and I say, this percentage of what I make is going to go straight into the offering plate or straight to a missionary on the field, no matter what. And then he said, all right. And he came to me a few days later and he says, hey, I'm, I'm going to do that. And I said, that's great. And see, so then finances doesn't become about we just want to live more comfortably. Finances now becomes that if I make this much, that means I give this much more to God's kingdom. Now, God doesn't need your money, but God wants your heart. And the problem is money seems to take the place. Okay, I've gotten off topic here, and I knew it would happen. But here's what happens when we pray selfishly is God looks at us, sees into the future, and knows what our heart is and says, you're not getting that. Paul asks, could you take this thorn away? And God says, mm-mm. As great of a man as Paul was, wrote the majority of our New Testament, God said, no. Because if I do, you'll become arrogant and prideful, and you won't seek my face. So you remember that the next time you are praying, and God says, I'm not going to take that away. I'm going to leave it. Continue to pray, continue to seek him, and then realize that it's for your best. You see, why do we have fights? Because our prayer gets shut off in the process. 
And when our prayer life gets frustrated, we get frustrated with people around us. You know, something else I saw on this, and I just was reading it again, and it's in the uh, middle of verse 3. It says, you fight and you wage war. The reason why we're at odds with God is not because of Him. It's because of us. We started the fire. But you, you make no mistake about this. If God is not your friend, He will be your enemy. Let's read verses 4 through 6. Pretty strong words, folks. You adulterous people. You cheaters is what that means. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God, or do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says He made a spirit that envies intensely? So here's how I thought of 4 through 6. 3 is a crowd. 3 is a crowd. There's you, there's God, and there's the world. There is no 3 in God's eyes. There's only 2. There's either you and him, or there's you and the world. But we think it's three. We think we can have Jesus on a stick, and then we can still have the world in our back pocket, and then there's us somewhere mixed in there. I want you to know, God does not, get this, does not compete for your affection. God deserves it. Who would he compete with? Who's going to step into the ring and say, I deserve your affection more than God? There's no competition, right? There is no competition between God's affection, who deserves it, and anything else. All right, I'm going to have some harsh realities for you here. I usually do. Anybody in this world that you love, whether you're sitting next to them, or whether you're sitting across from them, anybody in this world that you love doesn't deserve it. Did you hear me say that? They don't deserve it. I'll tell you why. Because they will mess things up. They will not be perfect. There will be a time when the person that you are sitting next to lets you down, and you know what you'll have to do? You'll have to love them anyways even though they don't deserve it. That never happens with Christ. Not once. I have messed things up. I, I sat down and I thought, is there any human relationship on this planet that I haven't messed up? And my answer came back pretty quick, no. Pretty quick. I've messed things up with my siblings, my brothers and sisters. I called them names, I mistreated them. Talked bad about them behind their back. Said they couldn't, they didn't know how to raise their kids right. I have talked poorly about my siblings. But you know what? My siblings love me. I don't deserve it. I have messed things up with my wife. I have royally screwed things up with my wife. But you know what? She still loves me. I've messed things up with my parents. Rebellious, punk kid. Growing up in high school, I would have not wanted to raise me. 
But I walked in the other day and I made some cookies and sat down with my mom and dad. And you know what? They still love me. I'll tell you what that is. That's grace and mercy that we give people who don't deserve it. But let me tell you, Jesus Christ deserves it. There's not one shred or part of his character that has ever wronged us, ever. And he deserves it. There is no competition for the love that we show Jesus Christ. None. And so what do we do? We cheat on him. The one person that deserves our affection unequivocally, we cheat on him. How do we cheat on him? We play around with the world. That's what we do. Well, what does friendship with the world look like that it mentions in verse 4? You want me to give you a list? I don't think I need to, right? I mean, I could give you a list of what friendship with the world looks like, but here's what happens with Christians is we miss the point here. The point isn't so we create a Christian bubble and isolate ourselves from everything that's worldly. The point is that we are not stained or influenced by the world in our decision-making. Goes right back to where do we get our wisdom, right? You see James's thought here? We think that he says, don't be friends with the world means, well, you can't, you can't associate with that scum out there. Well, I want you to know you're just a step away from them. You're just a redeemed sinner. You should have a pretty good perspective of what it's like to be scum. Three's a crowd. So here's what happens. You play around and you flirt with the world. Harmless flirting, I'm sure, right? Right, nothing's going to come of it. But you flirt with the world and you act like you have another friend. And here's what happens. God's not going to just sit around and take it. You know why? Because he loves you. Here's the first thing James says God responds. Verse 6. But he gives greater grace. Now, how good is that? But he gives greater grace. No matter how the world comes at you, no matter how much you flirt around with it or fool around with the world's philosophies and mess up, God says, I got enough grace for you here. Come on back. He doesn't act like I do with my kids, which is give them a good tongue lashing or maybe an actual lashing and chew them out and say, I told you so. He doesn't do that. He just says, I've got some grace. I'm here. Come on back. Our good response to that is humility. And if we don't show humility, it, it says what he's going to do. And it says it right there. God resists the proud. So what happens is this. That phrase, God resists the proud, that's a military term. So God has an entire army at his disposal to show you what humility is. An entire army to teach you a lesson on humility. 
It only took a couple angels to wipe out a whole city. And he says, I got a whole army waiting to point out humility to you. Humility. Don't submit to the world's standard of living and just watch out for number one. Ultimately, you're going to either be God's friend or you're going to be Satan's friend. In verses 7 through 10, God gives us a picture of how we treat our friends. 7 through 10. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. How do you treat your friends? I'm telling you right now, this is a great picture of salvation. How did you come to the point where you needed saved? It's when you realized there is nothing else I can do to make myself right with God other than submit to him. So I just went through, and as I was reading this, it just kind of popped some things in my head about friendship. Because if I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to be like Abraham and Moses, who were called friends of God, then what's that going to look like in my life? Well, James doesn't want me to be clueless. He wants me to be informed, so he writes them down. So when you bump into your friends and you talk about what's it like to submit to God, you can tell them they can stop searching because nobody's ever really going to find God. Had a girl on the mission trip, she's like, how do you know that that one's the real one? And I'm like, well, you don't have to search. for You don't have to sift through all of the so, quote-unquote, gods of the world to figure out which one's right. This one's searching for you. He's looking for you. And you don't have to talk about, hey, I'm pretty... I'm a pretty good person anyway because Romans says nobody's good. So how do we treat our friends? Well, submit to God. God's my one and only best friend. Now, I know that might be hard for some of you to hear because you think that the most important person in your life should be a spouse, and it's not. Or a parent, and it's not. He's my one and only best friend. I don't have two, three, or five people giving me advice on how to live my life. I got one. I got one. And this friend of mine, I listen to him. Why? Because he is a hundred percent invested in me. How invested in me is he? Well, you know where I'm going with me. He actually died for me. I mean, I love my family members. This guy is 100% invested in me. He means business. Something else I do with my friends. You really can only have one best friend. Isn't that true? I mean, you really can. It seems like guys can have like lots of best friends because none of them are really their best friend until they actually find a woman. And then they find out, oh, this is actually a best friend. 
these jokers I've been hanging around with my whole life, yeah, they were just filling in the gap until I actually found somebody that was cool enough to be my best friend. But I think it's pretty obvious, you girls, yeah, only one best friend for you girls. Because when another one comes in the picture, it's not pretty. Well, guess what? I got one best friend, and I don't juggle him with anybody else. Okay, let me get on to the next one. So, with my friends, we tend to not like the same people. Right? I mean, if you're going to be best friends with somebody, you tend to dislike or like the same kind of people. You tend to get together and talk badly about the same people, or you talk well about the same people. Jesus Christ is my best friend. And how do I know that? Verse 7. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. And what will he do? Verse 7. He will flee from you. Now, I watch a movie now and then, and I notice that people who are fighting some demonic power on a show or a movie, seems like they're always just barely escaping with their lives, right? Like everybody in the movie dies except one person, and then there's something at the very end that says, oh, you really didn't beat them. They're going to come back in part two, three, four, and 50. And they're just running scared for their lives. The picture I get here is this. You stand close to your one and only best friend, and Satan's only recourse is you're standing still, and he's beating it. Now, I don't know about you, but Hollywood never has that. That's how it really goes down. We can't see it, but that's how it really goes down. You're like, well, I haven't had to fight off any demons. Well, there's a reason for that. You stay close to the Lord, and he wages the war for you. You start flirting with the world, and guess what? Yeah. It, it would be great sometime in my life when I know I am in an area that is very dangerous, and I've been in those places. I mean, I, I know I've been in those places. Either I've been there. I can remember one time we were up in St. Louis on a mission trip, and we were supposed to walk through this neighborhood and invite people to come to a church that was in St. Louis. And this was in East St. Louis. And so it, it was a little scary, to say the least. And I was walking with some of the youth kids up there, and um, we'd walk up to houses and knock on doors. And um, we were told that if there was a gate and a fence around the yard, not to cross it, but to call out from the fence and not actually open the gate and walk up to the door, but leave it. And so they gave us some instructions on how not to be stupid. And so there was this one moment where I, we were walking by a liquor store. And so I, I thought, I'm going to go up there to that liquor store, and I'm going to invite some people to this church. So I walked up. And I want you to know that I was, I was a, a little bit lighter in color than any other person around. And so here's what they thought when I walked up. And this is actually what they told me, is I walked up, and... Uh, one gentleman said to me, you're pretty brave walking up here. And I said, 
I actually just want to invite you guys to church. And he goes, you got to be pretty stupid to walk up here. He goes, because I want you to know right now, i got a gun on me. Now, I didn't see this going on, but I bet somebody was behind the scenes, invisible to my eyes, wishing I'd have taken a bullet that night. But I'm telling you, you stick close to Christ, and moments you find yourselves that should have been perilous, they end up just going smooth. They do. Never been caught in a cartel fight, and I've been to Mexico nine times. Is that an accident? No. That's God being my friend. Being my friend. I don't have to do... I had a mom one time give me a, uh, a little coin that had St. Christopher on it, the patron saint of traveling. And I looked at that and I said, do I need any other person to go with me than God? And so I just shoved that in my classroom drawer and one of my students found it the other day and they're like, what are you doing with this? And I told them, I told them the story. I don't need a bunch of friends to go with me to keep me safe. I need one. One. Verse eight, verse eight. Something else with my friends. If they're truly my friends, I spend time with them. I love this verse. Draw near to God and he draws near to you. Real friends hang out. They don't ignore your texts. Yeah, you've done that. Yeah, I just didn't see your text. That's a lie. That is such a... That, I don't know how many times I've like called somebody and they're like, oh, I didn't see that you called. I'm like, just, just tell me you didn't want to talk. I mean, tell me the truth. Well, let me tell you what. If Jesus Christ is your friend, you spend time with him. You not only spend time with him, you clear your schedule and make time for him. That way you can start to understand a little bit about what he likes and what he doesn't like. And you can have a conversation with him. God wants your affection. Verse 8 also, if Jesus Christ is my friend, then I care about how I appear to him. And I have it up there as I get dressed up for him. Now, you're looking at me, and I'm wearing a T-shirt today, and I know that's a stretch. You're probably thinking I probably shouldn't preach in a T-shirt, but I sometimes do. I'm not talking about wearing a tie or a pair of polyester slacks. I'm talking about what James says. You get dressed up for him. Clean your hands and clean your heart. A while back, I went out to eat with my wife. And I, I was wearing, I, did, I didn't look very nice when I went out. And we, were, we, were, we weren't going out to a fancy restaurant, I'm just telling you. We weren't going to some place, you know, that had lots of real, you no, know, several sets of silverware, that kind of thing. Um, we were just going to a, a regular restaurant. But the problem was this. I was gauging what I was going to wear, not by who I went out with, but by the place I was going to. You see the backwardness of that? I was more concerned about what the people at the restaurant would think if I was wearing ratty work jeans and a dirty, nasty hoodie and my hair wasn't combed. I was worried about what the other people would think when the problem was that the most important person I was sitting with was the person I should be, I should be concerned with. 
that I should have combed my dang hair and put on some clothes that didn't look like I slept in them for a week and a half because the person I was with, I cared about them, they're my friend, and I don't want to embarrass her. Now, with my relationship with Jesus, I need to act right because everywhere I go, I carry him with me. Everywhere. I can't take him and put him somewhere and leave him at home. He's with me all the time. So I need to act right. Clean my hands. I can't just go through life indulging in sinful desires. I can't do that. I care about my friend. I need to clean my heart. Clean my heart means what's going on inside. I need to control how I think. And I need to be consistent. I need to continually say I'm sorry and repent for sin. Get dressed up for Christ. Something else I do with my friends, verse 9. I laugh and cry at the same stuff. Now, if you've got a friend and you think something's funny and they don't think it's funny, you might not be friends. Or if you think something's heartbreaking and they don't, you might not be friends. I'm just giving you some clues as to maybe people you think are friends. Wish we could have taught our daughter that, you know? It's something she thought was super important. Her friend thought it was just a waste of time. And we're like, she's probably really not your friend. Well, Jesus Christ is my friend. And I want you to know that the things that break his heart need to break my heart. My sinfulness is not something that I can just blow off and take lightly. I need to be serious about it. Self-esteem isn't all it's cracked up to be. Sometimes you need to sit and know that you're a dirtbag. That your relationship with Christ, your sin, needs to have a reaction to it. And the reaction isn't, I can put it off till later and think about it some other day. The reaction is, I need to get it right, right now, because Jesus Christ is my friend. Jesus wept over sin. When was the last time I had a heartbreaking moment over my sin? Something else that I do with my friends is I have a humble attitude with them. If you have a friend in this world and you've never said that you're sorry to them, then you're, they're probably not your friend. When I think of a humble attitude, these are, the, these are the ways that a humble attitude displays itself. I say I'm sorry frequently. And if I have a humble attitude, then I give compliments. Because I say somebody is doing something better than I am. Jesus Christ is my friend. And sometimes my prayers just need to be that. I'm sorry and thank you, and just start the list. And you know, what, you know what just blows my mind? Is the end of verse 10. 
God wants my attitude of weeping and sorrow and grief. He wants it there so he can do what? Leave me there? Gasping for breath in the mud and the muck? No. He doesn't want to leave me there. What's he want to do? End of verse 10. Exalt me. He wants to pick me up out of the mud, all dirty, and brush me off and say, now tell people who I am. Go tell them. Go tell them who I am. Go tell them who your friend is. You got the right perspective now. Go out there and tell them. He wants to exalt me. Encourage me to talk about him. That's my one true friend. Well, one more characteristic of my one true friend is 11 and 12. My real friends in this world, I, I trust their judgment. If somebody is really my friend and I ask them something and they say it to me, I trust that one, they didn't lie to me or stretch the truth or omit the truth. But my real friends, they tell me the truth and it's in line with what Christ would say. Well, my one true friend, I trust his judgment. And what that means is, I don't ever want to take control of it. I don't ever want to have it for myself. Now you're saying, well, I'm not judgmental. Well, that's a lie. Okay, I'll ask you the question. Does the world see Christians as judgmental people? Yes or no? Yes, they do, right? Okay, so what do we do about that? Here's what we do. First of all, we answer the question. Are we judgmental? The answer is, yes, we are. Now we want to know, well, why are we judgmental? I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you how it played out in my life. Maybe it rings true with you. I'm judgmental because I get it wrong. You ever done that? You ever size somebody up and say, hmm, don't know about that person? And then you found out you were completely wrong. You ever misjudged somebody? You ever done that? Of course you have. Well, that's why people think Christians are judgmental, because we do that. We tend to overstep our boundaries on whether or not we can call the shots in somebody's life. And you know what we do? We get it wrong. And when we get it wrong, those people don't like it. Do you like it when people misjudge you? Of course you don't. Here's the other thing that showed up in my life. People see me as judgmental because I misjudge people, and secondly... I'm very judgmental. And sometimes I don't even see it. Sometimes I don't even see it. I don't even see how I've judged a person or a kid or anything else. Now, before, before you walk out of here and you're like, I'm never judging another person again, I don't want you to get that opinion because the Bible's pretty clear that we have to weigh in on each other's lives. When we have a brother or sister that is sinning, we want them to come back. And the only way to get them to come back is to tell them they're going the wrong way. And you know how they're going to feel it? You're judging me. All right. So having said that, I want you to know that the act of being a judge is an action of love. I'll explain it to you. If I did not care about you, I would never say to you, you're going the wrong way. 
if I didn't love you? I'd never say it. I wouldn't care. I'm like, hey, go down the wrong path. See ya. But that's not what we do, right? We don't do that with our spouses. We don't do that with our kids. We don't do that with our parents. So we do judge. The problem is, we get it confused with being extremely judgmental. And we don't realize that we can't see all the angles in somebody's life. Only Jesus Christ is that worthy enough to judge. And I don't want his job. I trust his judgment. I don't want control of it. Only he can really sum up the worth of an individual, not me. Closing out here, some questions for you to think about. Is it about time you take a serious inventory of who your real friend is? All right, like seriously. Do you have three or do you just have one? I mean, when was the last time that you said, all right, I'm going to do everything I can to make Jesus Christ the priority in my life? Secondly, what war have I been waging with God, and is it about time I surrender? I don't know if you realize this, but your sin is an offense to God. And the war that is waging between you and Him starts with you. And He's the solution to it. Last question I have for you is, is it time that you get a new best friend? Stop listening and stop following the world's advice and start centering your life on Christ. He is the only one that is truly worth it. I'm going to pray right now and Sandra's going to come and play a couple songs for us. The moment for you to think about how you've treated your friendship with Christ. I'll be up here if you want to pray. God, this morning, God, we do cheat on you. God, the great thing is, is you, you see it coming, and then you're just waiting with grace. More grace than we think is there. And that God, as we have let ourselves get stained with the stupid stuff in this world, that God, you are still waiting with grace. That God, as we have lived our lives out, acting like you're really not our friends, that, God, you still offer grace. You still ask us to draw close, and you respond by being close. God, this morning, I have attempted to preach your word today. God, help us to live out lives that look like we're your friends. Help us not to cling on to the world. Help us not to grasp it so tightly. 
Help us to reach out and grasp onto you in the things that we do, in the things that we say, in the things that we think. We love you. We pray these in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. From Tiffin Baptist Church, thank you for listening to this sermon. Our Sunday service starts at 1045, and we'd love to have you join us.